Hello and welcome to The Bookshelf on RN, your weekly fiction fest. I'm Kate Evans. And I'm Cassie McCullough. And did you know that next Thursday, that's the 19th of September, is Australian Reading Hour, which encourages everyone to take the pledge to stop and read for at least one hour that day. Will you be able to fit that in, Kate, around all your other reading? (laughs) I'll I'll see what I can do, Cassie. (laughs) But if you're not sure what to read, you've come to the right place, because today Today we have four new books from Australia, Lithuania, the USA and Canada. Well, Canada, Margaret Atwood, the whole world knows that The Testaments was released earlier this week. It's a sequel, of course, to The Handmaid's Tale. Another sequel, perhaps, Elizabeth Strout's Olive Again, revisiting her blunt protagonist, Olive Kittredge. And we'll also hear about Peter Goldsworthy's Minotaur, which introduces us to a blind policeman bent on revenge. And Alvidus Schlepikas, In the Shadow of Wolves, that takes us to Europe in 1946. And novelist Hannah Kent has read that one for us. Is it true, Kate, that you actually rang the Lithuanian embassy to, to find out how to pronounce that name? The the Honorary Consulate of Lithuania. <laughs> I had a lovely conversation with her and she set me to rights and I have to apologise to her if I've managed to mangle it in any way. <laughs> There's a humming in the restless summer air And we're slipping off the course that we prepared But in all chaos there is calculation Dropping glasses just to hear them break Well, as book lovers know, many of the big releases of the year happen in September and October. So buckle up, people. There's going to be a lot coming our way. And those that are most anticipated come to us with strict dates and embargoes and a lot of palaver. Earlier this week, Margaret Atwood's new novel, The Testaments, was released. And as you probably know, the embargo was broken by Amazon. There was a whole panel discussion about that this week on The Book Show with Sarah Lestrange. Canadian writer Margaret Atwood writes poetry and non-fiction as well as novels and broadly speaking her fiction can be divided into her historical fiction so The Blind Assassin, Alias Grace which is one of my favourites and dystopian fantasy including the Mad Adam trilogy that started with Oryx and Crake and the very influential The Handmaid's Tale. So she published that one in 1985, set in the country of Gilead, a patriarchy in which women are expected to know their place and are divided into categories according to their roles. The handmaids bear children, the Marthas are servants, the aunts wield terrible authority. It's also been made into a TV series uh, that began with the original novel and uh, is quite noted for its brutality, Kate. I could only manage to watch two episodes of the TV version and then had nightmares and couldn't keep watching it. Nightmares? Yeah. Yeah, really, really and truly nightmares. But I read the original novel, The Handmaid's Tale, in 1988, just a few years after it came out, and I still have my original copy. And that is tells the story of Offred, or of Fred, who's one of the handmaids. And in that first novel, we're flung right into the middle of this new regime and country. And we sort of have to work out from the inside out what happens there. We see the brutality of her life. We understand there's an underground and a resistance called May Day. Uh, we know that this woman had had a child in a previous life, a life like ours, before she's taken. But importantly, the whole structure of that original book 
lets us know that Gilead itself is overthrown. So the final chapter of the book is an academic paper looking back to this distant past and this place called Gilead. So that's that's what happened in the first version. Uh-huh. So where do you go from there? She's followed this up so many years later. What does she do about that problem? Well, it's set about 15 years later, but it goes back to the origins of the regime and explains the factors that led to its downfall. And so in a way, this new book is more explicit about the context of Gilead and explaining how it works. So it's partly a novel that answers the questions that Rita might have had about how it all worked, but it also... It sounds so dangerous. I mean, I'm thinking this could have been the picnic and hanging rock missing chapter, you know, where it's aliens and and it all falls apart. But she does it well? She does it really well. And I think that if you'd never read the original Handmaid's Tale, you could go straight to the Testaments and read it as a complete standalone novel. It would make sense. It's gripping. It's got an extraordinarily engaging plot. And they work in their own right. You'd probably get a bit more out of it if you had read the first one because you'd be connecting things up. But in the Testaments, you've got three intertwined narratives. There's uh, the story of a young woman called Agnes who has been brought up entirely within Gilead. So it's her normal. So she's sort of a, a convert. She's not a zealot, but this is how life works for her. Then there's Daisy a young woman in Canada, which is just across the border, who is in fact the stolen child, baby Nicole, who is the daughter of Offred from the first book. And then the most intriguing character in the whole book is Aunt Lydia. Now, she is one of the forces for power within the regime, an extraordinarily brutal character who we get to understand. She's not excused but we get to meet both how she got to be there and what she's what she's doing. So you say for people who haven't read The Handmaid's Tale, this stands alone, but what about all the people who've only watched the telly series? Well, well you, you don't know because you haven't gone past episode two. But I have been reading about this and I understand that the first series of the TV series stuck very close to the original and then in the ongoing series it becomes more explicitly brutal and violent. One of the differences with what Atwood is doing as a writer is that the oppressive violence that is central to this regime mostly happens off the page. So torture and the things that keep people in place aren't spelt out for us. So it's not an endurance test the way that some of the watching can be. And I believe she has also made some significant uh, divergence from the TV series, particularly in this character of Aunt Lydia. But the things that have made it iconic as a part of popular culture, the sort of the visuals of it, the um, the way that the women dress, the figure of the eye, which is the, the way they police. dress with the, the white 
bonnet hooded down over their faces so they're anonymised and the long red capes, that's what you're talking about? Yes, and that other characters in other parts of society, so the Marthas, the servant characters all wear green and women in power are grey or, or brown. All of those things are from her original world. And, and have been co-opted into um, pop- popular protests uh, in recent years and, um, that, you know, that prophetic nature of the original book has been much celebrated. So why do you think she did it? Partly she says that she did it because of the ongoing questions from readers. That's one aspect of it. Uh-huh. But the other is that in both of these books... They're dystopian, but they're not fantasy in that it's based on things that either are happening now in the world or have happened at some period in history. And as prescient and as chilling as that seemed in 1985 when she wrote the first one, in some ways it has become more so. So part of what drives this regime of Gilead is a sort of religious fundamentalism, Christian beliefs about the position of women, about control of women's bodies, about power dynamics. And as these things have become more and more of an issue in the contemporary world, then she is writing her fiction in response to that. But in terms of the sort of plot and propulsion, it's also an engaging spy story. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So there is some forward motion. And it's It is completely compelling. You do want to know how it's all going to come together because we understand that this system is going to fall. We've got no idea how. And so there's some sort of spy in the ranks who is working with the the forces outside Gilead because Gilead isn't just the United States. There's been an overthrow of the government, which is explained, And there is, for example, a Republic of Texas that has kept itself as a separate country. So we have this radical regime which is being scrutinised by the rest of the world. And there's an underground female road of people getting out of Gilead and they're heading north to Canada. So just across the border, there are forces of resistance and they are somehow working with Gilead and we don't quite know how and that is really fascinating. I'm gathering you liked it, Kate. <laughs> I did like it. It's how long have you waited? How what was what was the when did you read it? I read the original in nineteen eighty eight. Thirty one years. Thirty one years and it was well worth it. I enjoyed it. It's clever, it's engaging and it's certainly it's certainly thought provoking. Margaret Atwood's The Testaments is published by Viking. Cause hope is a dangerous thing for a woman like me to have. Hope is a dangerous thing for a woman like me to have. Another sequel of a kind, Cassie, another much-awaited novel, and that's Elizabeth Strout's Olive Again. Olive, comma, again. That is Olive Kitteridge, who appeared in the book of the same name, published in 2008. And Olive Kitteridge won the 2009 Pulitzer Prize. So you read that first book, Cassie. Who is Olive Kitteridge? Well, let me just allow the Pulitzer Prize committee to do the heavy lifting for me. She's at times stern, at other times patient, 
at times perceptive, at other times in sad denial. Olive Kitteridge, a retired school teacher, deplores the changes in her little town of Crosby, Maine, and in the world at large, but she doesn't always recognise the changes in those around her. So that's how we found Olive in the very first book, which uh, was quite a sensation around the world. It too was made into a television miniseries, a four-parter with Frances McDormand in the titular role. Uh, She is one of those extremely real characters, one that you can imagine that you feel like you've met, that even after you've read the book, uh, you kind of find yourself thinking about her. And that's exactly what happened to Elizabeth Strout. She never meant to write another one. She didn't think she was going to at all. But somehow she said, um, Olive just turned up and was right there in front of her and had a whole story ready to tell again. And so she's done it. And it echoes the first book. So the first one is Olive Kitteridge and this one is Olive again. In between she's written many other novels, but she has this uh, distinctive style in these two books and also in some of her others where she does what might be called a discontinuous narrative or a series of linked stories. So it's a bit like an album of music. If you listen to the whole album, you get an experience, but each of the the songs or each of the stories uh, do stand on their own. So each of the books have 13 of the stories and there are some recurring characters and Olive is right the way through. And she's older in this. Her husband died at the end of the last and so she's beginning to to move on and some of the old troubles are there and some of her old habits and cantankerous explosions still occur but it's a very uh, strong return and and quite wonderful. I picked up Olive again never having read Olive Kitteridge What did I miss by not reading the first one? I'm not sure that you missed much except for some beautiful writing. I mean, you can read this as it is, I think, and uh, you'll still have a sense of disconcertion at some times, which I think you had in Olive Kitteridge because you're always wondering where this fits in and why you're hearing about this person. It always works out. But I think there's just some outstanding, beautiful writing. In fact, one of the stories in there... Let me just find it just a sec. One of the stories in it is called Light or February Light. Uh, Because we have an advanced copy, I'm not sure what the final name of, of this particular chapter is, but it's about Cindy Coombs who has an illness and is kind of confined to home. And I'll just read you this little bit because you learn so much about her in in such economic writing. When she was young, Cindy had thought about being a poet. What a silly idea. But as a child, she had liked poetry. Her third grade teacher had given her a copy of Edna St Vincent Millay's Poems Selected for Young People. And when her little sister coloured all over it in red crayon, Cindy hit her. This memory caused Cindy deep pain because of what happened later to her little sister. You do find out what happened to the little sister, but it's just left there as this clue and you don't find it out until Olive turns up at Cindy's house, having seen her out at the supermarket and twigged that there's something wrong. So she just barrels up a couple of days later and lets herself in practically to the bedroom where Cindy's in bed and they begin this conversation and it's quite clear that Cindy Cindy is 
ill. She doesn't know whether she'll live or die and she's absolutely terrified and she's been more or less disconnected from everyone she knows because they too are frightened and they don't know what to say. But it's Olive who has the courage to just turn up. And we didn't even have time to consult on this, Cassie, but that was one of my absolute favourite chapters in this book because what it showed to me was how much this character of Olive Kitteridge actually sees people (laughs) and she sees their pain or she sees their distress and she's so blunt that she just barrels up to people and says, you know, how are you going or that's really crappy. How are you feeling about the fact your father's died? How are you... Yeah, and she just, she actually sees them. Mm-hmm. And there's so much compassion in that, that it cuts through this sort of flinty woman. Yes. When I, I finished reading that chapter, I actually had to put the book down and just, you know, I actually was almost sobbing. It was so powerful. It reminded me of the only other time I felt like that reading a short story. And that was John Steinbeck's The Breakfast, which I still can't think about without my eyes welling up because it's just the most sublime moment of, oh, look, you can just find that online. This is naughty of me, but you can just Google it. Just read The Breakfast by Steinbeck if you if you want to know what I'm talking about. But that's interesting that you say that about seeing people because that's actually Elizabeth Strout's incredible strength. And uh, not so long ago, about a previous book of hers, uh, I spoke to her. Now, this was a sequel to Lucy Barton, another one of her quite similar novels, uh, and it was called Anything is Possible. And I asked her about you know, how she saw these characters because she does say they just come to her and this is what she said. Yes, many, many of the characters do come to me somehow fully formed. I I don't quite understand it, but they do. And some of these characters I've had to scratch out a little bit more to discover who they are. But, you know, Dottie and Abel Blaine, they were already there from My Name is Lucy Barton and now they've grown older and, and so I sort of instinctively understood them. When you write these stories about these lives, um, I'm wondering, you know, the writer's eye that you see with, do you observe real people and then capture some kind of truth that you've glimpsed there? Well, I'm always, always, always watching people, strangers usually, because, you know, I live in New York and there's many, many strangers, but on the subways and the buses and on the sidewalks, I'm just always, always, always watching people so carefully, just just their physical bodies, just what they're saying, what they're doing. As Jim Burgess says in the Burgess Boys, people are always telling you who they are. (laughs) So, you know, there is that as well. So if you listen carefully and you watch, you'll learn an awful lot. Do you think that Elizabeth Strout might be a little bit like Olive Kitteridge herself? (laughs) Imagine having her sharp eye turned on you. And then what Olive Kittredge will do is then give you that truth back to yourself, Mm. which for so many of these characters is actually quite liberating and quite moving, although other characters dismiss her as, oh, here's that old bag coming up the driveway again. Yes, and then then someone else will say, oh, I quite liked her when she was my teacher in third grade or something. But she she does have flaws and she is unlikable and she has this quite troubled, strained relationship with her son and his wife, which is very human as well. Yes, she doesn't always see herself as well as she sees other people. (laughs) (laughs) But what a pleasure to sit down with this with this book, Cassie. Yeah, pick it up. It's a good one. And just take the time. Elizabeth Strout's Olive Again is published by Viking Penguin. (laughs) 
Time now on the bookshelf to meet this week's guests. From Adelaide, we're joined, I'm delighted to say, by Hannah Kent, whose debut novel, Burial Rights, the story of the last woman executed in Iceland in 1829, took the world by storm. She's since written The Good People, set in 19th century Ireland. Hannah, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. Hi, Hannah. And also with us from Melbourne, retired Professor of Literature Stephen Knight, an expert in Chaucer, Arthurian legend and mythology with a taste for crime fiction too. Stephen, hello. Hello to you. (laughs) So, Stephen, I think we can safely say that both you and Hannah are interested in history, mythology and crime. That sounds like it, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, So, Stephen, stories of King Arthur and Robin Hood are regularly revisited in both fiction and popular culture. But what about Chaucer? Is it time for those stories to be reworked, do you think? Well, it gets a bit of reworking. There is um, quite a few Chaucer novels, particularly in the uh, historical crime fiction field. Several people have him as a late 14th century detective. But I agree, he's not updated as much, probably because his work is so strongly set in the late 14th century and he's been seen as this great medieval first great English poet, so on. Uh, But, you know, yes, perhaps he'll modernise. You know, Stephen, a friend of mine is a sub-editor and uh, on the subs desk at this newspaper they had a nickname for one of the journalists who was such a bad speller they called him Chaucer behind his back. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, well, so, yes, well, the spelling wasn't as valued as much then. Shakespeare spelt his name in various ways, I believe. Yes, <laughs> yes, on the same document. He mm. spelled it three or four different ways, didn't he? So, Hannah, you stepped into Iceland's archives for burial rites and you looked into Ireland's folk stories for the good people. Is that how you uh, seek your ideas for stories, by delving into the past like that? Not really, although that seems like a a fairly good way to do it. Maybe I should do it in future. No, I tend to just discover the novels through a more general sense of curiosity, often through anecdote and often when I'm researching a different novel. So the whole idea of the good people came about when I actually read a newspaper article that I had just happened to find when I was actually researching the, the life and execution of Agnes Magnus Dottir. So it was much more sort of happenstance than sort of deliberately seeking out, you know, seeking out a, a true story to, to sort of turn into fiction or something to then go on and research. And that seems to be, you know, the pattern of my work. It's just yeah, largely accidental, I'm mm-hmm. afraid. Mm-hmm. Now, Stephen, you've turned away from the older myths that you've spent mm-hmm. a lot of time working on in your latest work, I think. Mm-hmm. And you're writing about the 19th century crime writer yes, Wilkie yes. Collins. Why? What's That's so correct. important? What's so important about his work? Uh, well, I think the pattern's been that I started off, you know, classically writing on the big fellas, King Arthur, Chaucer, but I've always been, and it's a little bit like Hannah's work, much more interested in the popular because it's so volatile, so that Robin Hood stories vary much more than King Arthur stories, and they tend to represent the interests of peoples and periods. And I got interested in crime fiction for that reason. And Wookie Collins, seen by the English literary gentry as just a crime writer, just Dickens' apprentice, he actually wrote... 20-plus novels, 50 long short stories, they became increasingly serious and increasingly radical, which is why I think the English literary gentry have always repressed them. And in this new book, I'm sort of talking about his concerns with vivisection, marriage laws, need for education of the poor, etc., etc. 
I happened to be in conversation at the Sydney Crime Writers Festival on the weekend with the political journalist Laurie Oakes, who is, a, it oh, turns yeah. out, a big fan of Wilkie Collins. Well, <laughs> there you are. <laughs> How interesting. <laughs> So's my mum, actually. She gave yeah. me a couple of books of he, Wilkie he, Collins not so long ago. He's a great and varied writer. Mm. Um, okay, well, look, so should we hop to, Kate? Yes, and get stuck into the, the books that we've, okay. we've given you both to read. So, Stephen, we've given you an Australian crime novel with mythic titles. Hannah, a cold historical novel for us to read today. So why don't we begin there, Hannah? And I think we can say that, Hannah, you are an expert on ice and snow, <laughs> given your work on the Icelandic story Burial Rights. And the novel that we've both read is bitterly cold. I don't think I've ever felt so cold reading a novel as this one. I had to read most of it in bed with extra blankets piled <laughs> on top of me. The book is called In the Shadow of Wolves by Lithuanian writer Alvidas Schlepikas. Now, he's an actor and a director, as well as a poet, a novelist and playwright. And Hannah, while this book takes us into Lithuania, it doesn't start there. Where are we and what's happening at the very beginning? So The Shadow of Wolves first places the reader in East Prussia. Uh, we're in the winter of 1946, so post-war, and Russian soldiers, victorious, uh, who have been promised spoils of war, have been have been moving into the homes of Germans who are now completely displaced and, and fighting for survival at the beginning of what promises to be an incredibly bitter, terrible winter. We meet a woman called Eva, who has been moved from her home and is now forced to live in what was their woodshed with her children, uh, Brigitte, Monica, Renata and Helmut. And they are basically starving, starving hungry. When we meet Eva, she's waiting outside the, the Russian soldier quarters, outside their canteen, for potato peelings that they are going to come out and tip in the snow. And, of course, there are many other Germans there with her fighting for these scraps. She manages to take them. And even though this is her village, this is the place where she grew up, where she has many fond memories, it has been transformed in the wake of war and the violence and the hostilities that continue there. She has to avoid drunken soldiers who are an imminent threat to women. She bumps into frozen corpses, people who simply just gave up or who were shot outside. It's dark, the snow and wind is terrible. She's separated from her friend. But the time she finally gets home, all her family and her sister-in-law are crouched around a little wood stove, eager for these potato peelings, which they're going to dry, then grind up to make flatbread. So already it's an incredibly grim Mm -hmm. bitterly cold wow. place. Yep, absolute desperation, just clinging on. Absolutely. And they're beside a river, a, a frozen river, and there is a brief opening scene even before we meet Eva, which is intensely brutal. So there are seven children running across this river, observed by two Russian soldiers, almost in an offhand way, mm -hmm. as one of them throws a grenade towards them and the other starts shooting. So although, I mean, there are many reasons to read this book and to want to read this book, that opening certainly made me clench my, clench my jaw and brace myself. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. And especially because it's preceded by a very, almost a poem in italics, which which opens up the scene for the reader, almost as if uh, Schlepikus thought he needed to really bring the reader right to this moment, that they wouldn't be able to visualise it for themselves, simply because of the the extent of the brutality and the cruelty which is which is at play continually in this environment um, but that that scene that you that you mentioned where these children are tr- uh, trying to cross the frozen river i think it's nemunus or nemunus um, from from prussia into lithuania where there is at least still danger but at least the promise of food and some security and like you say the the way that they almost with apathy try to pick off these children as they you know these are these are 5 year olds 6 year olds just trying to fight for survival just gives you an incredible sense that this book is going to rip your heart out, not only because of the fate of these children, but by the betrayal of the way in which war has completely taken much of the humanity away from the soldiers who have been forced to fight it. So the war is over, but it's not over, and it's particularly not over for the civilians. But as you say, the children, and some of the children in this book, are heading to Lithuania. I mean, why? Well, one of the events that really starts to propel the narrative uh, forward is when uh, Eva's eldest son, Heinz, manages to return from Lithuania. He smuggled himself inside a a coal tray in a train heading over there and through a combination of begging and his limited Lithuanian and working on farms, he was able to secure some food in a sack and again smuggle that back into East Prussia. So he comes back to the woodshed and in this sack he has bread and cheese and potatoes and fat back and they're finally able to have a proper meal. He really saves the lives of his family members. But of course what happens then is that the other children think, well, we need to go to Lithuania as well. We need to, it can't just be Heinz. And so we meet child after child and track their stories and sometimes it's disjointed and quite shocking in a way that seemed deliberate. For example, there's a six-year-old boy called Hansel who we're told by the by the voice of the novel that we're told to remember this child because we'll meet him properly later. And when we do, it's so shocking. I'm actually not going to say quite what happened to him, but you're then just sort of left going, oh, that's all. That's all it meant to meet this child. I wonder what you made of the way that he sort of disjointed these stories. I found it incredibly poignant because what I found really happens is at the beginning of the book you meet this cast of characters and you have an immediate very intense understanding of their suffering and then as you sort of you start to follow these various children as they seek freedom as they try to reach Lithuania as they encounter cruelties but also kindnesses from strangers but as the book continues you realise that you haven't heard from them in a while. There's one example, one of the eldest daughters, um, or two of the eldest daughters of Eva, Brigitte and uh, Renata, hop onto a train. They manage to find a train and hide themselves in straw only for a bunch of Russian soldiers to enter the cabin. And they're, they're, they're discovered. And even though the Russian soldiers are saying, look, we won't hurt you, we won't hurt you, the youngest daughter, Renata, throws herself off the moving train. But their older sister stays and they're all sort of looking aghast at this little girl tumbling off the side of the the railway track. But there's more to Renata. We find out a lot more about her. But that's the last we hear from Bridget or Brigitte. And I realised, you know, you have no idea what happens to them until finally, really in the last third of the novel, the only child you're following is Renata, this little girl who is six years old at the opening of the novel. And this has this incredible sense of 
I don't know. It's, 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 an, it's a curious tension as a reader because on one hand, you haven't heard of anything terrible happening to these kids, but also you have this incredible sense that they have been lost to these various fates. And because of the nature of the book and, and these, these awful things that we do read about, you know, we don't want to really speak about them because I think it might deter people from reading it, which is not something that I think should happen. But you, you, you sort of, you know, you want to hope, but at the same time, there's something within you which thinks, well, that that was them. That was the end of their story. There, you just don't know what happened to them. And I think that also echoes, you know, obviously what happened to many of these children. And you know, these, this is um, in his afterward. Schlepikus talks about how he has researched this Wolfskinder or the wolf children, these these children who were forced into the forest who tried to reach Lithuania to survive and how so many accounts have been lost but some have been kept. And uh, I think his the way that he just lets characters go, just cuts them off, is maybe another way that he's pointing out to to the he's pointing to the fact that so much of so many of these narratives have been lost that we will never truly comprehend what happened to these children. Because there is a sense in which while this is a novel, it's part of deliberately telling and what's quite an uncomfortable history in a way, because it's both the way in which children suffer in war, which we probably think we know, but it also goes to the question of German civilian complicity or not in mm. World War II and what it means. Because when we meet the Russian soldiers, they're not just looking at these um, kids and women who are left as Germans and as the enemy, they're labelling them. And that's part of what loses these children, their, their humanity. They're referred to quite early on as, as pigs, which is has a nice echo, not nice is the wrong word, but which has an echo there because I think we've come across many narratives where German soldiers, the Nazis referred to particularly the Jewish people as animals. They are nothing but animals. And here we have that, you know, replayed on with the German children particularly, but also the remaining Germans in East Prussia where the Russians considered them to be nothing more than animals. They, there's even a Russian soldier who says they are not human. And this is also uh, reported to be a sentiment which is posted up on propaganda posters, which is on military signs everywhere. The Russian soldiers are encouraged to take their spoils of war and to not even grant any compassion to women and children particularly because they are all one and the same. But also, as you said, Hannah, there are significant moments of kindness and bravery and compassion in this book as well, because these lost children are just turning up at farmhouses and in marketplaces and begging for help, which some people do give them. And I think this is what, for me, enabled me to keep on reading the book, really, is because you... you and I think the instances which really um, moved me were not necessarily the characters who enter the lives of these children and immediately show compassion and kindness. And there are some of those, and particularly towards the end, and there's some beautiful writing there, particularly in the case of Renata. But you, there were many instances where people would turn them away from the door or one of the family would turn them away, uh, put the dogs on them, and then there would be a moment of relenting, I suppose, or you could hear someone else in the house saying, no, 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 let them in, let them in, we can feed them for a night. And I think that really spoke to, I think, I think there was a type of honesty in the portrayal of that kind of anxious compassion that was given out that was still kind of, uh, I don't know, combined with a, a type of selfishness and a concern for, for one's own family. Um, there was something particularly human, I think, in those moments of flawed compassion that I thought were presented really quite beautifully. 
Stephen Knight, I wonder if we could bring you in, given that we've now brought together this story of 1946 and also these deep, dark forests mm. of Europe and even the position of wolves in fairy tales. What are you thinking mm. as you hear this? Well, what I was thinking was this is in a way a reverse beast fable, isn't it? I mean, the, the grim stories and beast fables like Chaucer's Nun's Priest Tale used animals to represent humans in ironic, comic, malicious ways. And here he's saying it's the other way around. Humans have become like animals, both the wandering wolf-like children and the even more villain, villainous animal-like great wolf-like people who force them into that. It's a really intriguing reversal uh, that makes the, you know, benign, humorous, it-all-makes-sense mood of the Beast Fable, it's absolutely chilling reverse. It's, it's, a, it's obviously a brilliant revelation of those terrible experiences that people had, and, you know, one has friends whose family came from Lithuania, the Ukraine, and they had horrifying experiences. Mm. Mm. And Hannah, I understand that part of the impact of this novel is that it is still considered to be part of a secret story of the end of World War II, that there were these German children who then became Lithuanian, who it sounds like there were adoptions that were um, not formal ones and that this is still a story that is not talked about and not easily acknowledged in Lithuania. Absolutely. And this is, I love an author's afterword, particularly with historical novels or novels which take as their basis true events, because I think that's where you really start to appreciate how much more there is to learn about narratives like this. And in and in his afterwards, Schlepikas talks about the fact that his novel was largely informed by the experiences of two women, uh, both one called Renata and one called Renata. And uh, But intriguingly, he also acknowledges the fact that after he spoke to one of these women, who was a, who was a wolf child, uh, she later wrote to him and said that she would no longer be speaking about it, that it was in the past that she wanted to move forward. And so it made me wonder whether the, I guess, the largely sort of general population's ignorance of these sorts of stories stems from, you know, the way in which they, there hasn't been a means for them, for, there hasn't been any facilitation of their telling, or whether it's also simply because the traumatic events have been so traumatic that there's no reason why people who experience them would ever seek to re-experience them in a, in a retelling. Mm. But it does make for a powerful novel. Alvidas Schlepikas in the Shadow of Wolves is translated by Romas Kinka and it's published by One World. You're listening to The Bookshelf on RN or maybe via podcast. I'm Cassie McCullough here with Kate Evans, uh, with also Professor Stephen Knight and novelist Hannah Kent. Peter Goldsworthy is an Adelaide writer of poetry, fiction, stage plays and libretti. His books include Maestro, Honk If You Are Jesus and Navel Gazing. And also, by the way, he happens to be a GP. Stephen Knight, do you have a favourite of Peter Goldsworthy's earlier books? 
Yes, I think Wish is the very strong one. I think it was uh, 1995. It's been reprinted, I'm pleased to say, by text. It's a fascinating story about a man whose parents were deaf, so he knows all about sign language. And so he teaches sign language to a gorilla who's been liberated by the Animal Liberation Front. And I think I'll leave the story there because it's fantastic. (laughs) But it's very goalsworthy and it's very complex and speculative and also amusing, but deep down very serious. And he's written this one now. It's called Minotaur. I should say I interviewed him on stage about it at the Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival last weekend, and we'll play a little extract Mm -hmm. from that soon. But, Stephen, this isn't a police procedural, but the central character is a policeman, Rick Zadow. His life was changed dramatically a few years before the story opened. So what had happened to him? Well, he'd been working under, as an undercover policeman with a bikey gang who were involved in brothels and drug usage. They were called the Golgothans. <laughs> An interesting, typical Goldsworthy, is it a joke? Is it a complexity? You work it out. And he came into conflict with one of them and uh, they fought and he was shot in the back of the head and he lost his sight. His eyes weren't hurt, but his cortex was apparently. And the woman involved in the fight, he married and they are sort of living together, squabbling together. She has become a doctor with his help. He calls her Willow. He even calls her Willowpedia because she knows so much. (laughs) (laughs) And through the novel, he lives with her most of the time, his dog, Scout, uh, all the time. And how much should we tell of the story? Eventually, the man who shot him escapes from jail and he then has thoughts of vengeance. And the big finish of the novel, I think, will leave to readers to read. But you have brought up, I think, what is one of the questions of the novel, which is, given that the book is called Minotaur... Is Rick, the Minotaur of Greek Uh, mythology, half man, half beast, trapped in a labyrinth? Mm -hmm. Or is he some other figure in that mythic story? He certainly thinks his house, he can't see, is is a labyrinth and he has to find his way around it. And he's represented on the cover as having horns, so I think probably Goldsworthy approved that. In some ways he is this sort of trapped beast. Mm. Now, just remind us of the fabulous Theseus and the Minotaur myth Uh, because um, I remember the gold thread, but I can't quite remember what the mission was. Minos got given a bull by Poseidon and he thought it was wonderful. He thought it was so lovely he didn't sacrifice it but one of his own and he kept this bull and then, blow me, his wife fell in love with it. Is Willow herself pacify? And they had a half-man, she had a half-man, half-bull, the Minotaur, the Minos Taurus. And so he kept it in a labyrinth that Daedalus made. And some years later, when Minos is making a nuisance of himself with Athens and demanding about every seven or perhaps nine years a number of young men and maidens to execute, Theseus stepped in, entered the labyrinth, sorted it out, killed the Minotaur. And as you very rightly said, I think that not only is Rick Zado the Minotaur, he also is Theseus because, I think we can reveal this, the um, man who shot him actually comes to the house and is himself trapped in the house and 
Rick goes after him. So this double doubling of the myth, which is very Goldsworthy, he's very clever. He writes quite a lot of his poems have got complex mythic elements in it. So I think that's the underlying uh, centre of this, you know, novel, which, as you say, is a police story, but is also a psycho thriller. And the house itself as a labyrinth or a maze is a very interesting one because mm. it's a smart house. So it has been designed for him as a blind person who can yes. use his voice to turn the lights on and yes. off and so on. But he's, he plays around with technology in this book. So who is Rick Zadow's other offsider? Well, book. there is this figure called Siri, a female voice, who is his his mechanical voice, who tells him what address he needs to go to, if he's got any phone messages, turns the lights on or off, and uh, he quite often seems to want to argue with her and get her to interpret his life, but she usually backs out of that with some polite message. But <laughs> whereas Willow, his uh, girlfriend wife, comes and goes and is um, both violent and clever and passionate, Siri is this calm, off-stage voice. And it seems to me to be a very clever way of dealing with technology, which is something yeah. that Cassie and I often talk about in terms of crime fiction. It can either make things too easy or too impossibly hard. So instead, he's harnessed the technology yes. and embedded it in the books in quite, sometimes a very dark way, but in quite an entertaining way. Yes, and he also still has technological skills. There's a quite a lengthy sequence where he works on his Ducati, Graffine Ducati motorbike. <laughs> Though he's blind, he can still find all his tools and he does that. And you will have noticed the five parts of the book are named for the five senses and the last part of the book is sight. And no, he doesn't get his sight back, but he somehow has insight uh, into the world. It's wonderfully uh, complex, elusive book uh, and a very funny. James Bradley, in a very good introduction to Wish, the early novel, talks about Goldsworthy moving effortlessly between comedy and compassion. You know, it's irony and insight in the books. Mm-hmm. Which also means that the rage, because this char character, Rick, yes. is full of rage yes. and a sense of vengeance, but yes. that's not the only thing about him, is it? No, no, no. Yes, he is. He is vengeance. He, he thinks he owes a debt of blood, he says early on, an eye to for the man an eye. who shot him. And the, 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 the big final scene, uh, which I'm glossing over, is very violent, very vengeful. And somehow that all passes and we get a sort of wonderful psycho-thriller uh, resolved ending uh, involving the motorbike, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps some redemption through being yes. able to make or fix or touch things. I think that's right. That's very good. Yes, I, I think Goldsworthy would, would, would like, to, like to hear you say that. But that whole sensual sense of the city and the way that he moves through it and even of his offsider. Now, it comes through, I think, in this little extract that I'd like us to listen to. So here's Peter Goldsworthy and his character Rick on a pavement somewhere in Adelaide. He's lost and he's trying to work out where he is. Sounds, the hard acoustic of the house behind me. A softer world ahead, echo-free and already fuzzy around the edges with bee buzz. Smells, the cloying sweetness of jasmine to the left, a faint savoury rock pool stink. Prawn heads in a garbage can? Somewhere to the right. She didn't eat seafood, had she been serving aphrodisiacs to her new boyfriend. Such was my state of mind, I would have gone through a garbage giving it, given a pair of working eyes. 
Instead, I tapped a low picket front fence, found the gate, fingered the latch, and walked through into the street. Which street? Willow had kept her address secret all these months. I sniffed for more clues. Not a main road after all, it seemed. No trace of diesel in the after-trail of jasmine, no exhaust fumes of any kind. Time to swallow my pride and ask for help. I turned my mouth to my collar microphone. Current location, Siri. No answer. The sisterhood sticking together? The truth was less dramatic. She was powered down. I tugged her from the belt holster, thumbprinted the on button, reholstered her and repeated the question. 246A Wakefield Street came the familiar soothing contralto, Adelaide. So much for sisterhood solidarity, I said. I'm not sure I understand, Richard. <laughs> Don't even try. I need you in my corner. Drop pin, current location. Pin dropped, name pin. Gotcha, I said. I was fascinated to hear him reading then because that opening section is called Smell. And you can hear how Goldsworthy and Rick are working the idea of knowing through smelling. It's wonderful. And I wonder if we could bring Hannah Kent back in. This is a story set in Adelaide. So as you heard Peter Goldsworthy reading that section, what, what do you think of having a, a fictional character walking through your streets? Oh, I love it. I, I haven't read enough books set in Adelaide. I know there are a lot out there, but hearing hearing him speak and then hearing the Wakefield Street thrown in, suddenly you, I think as a reader you bring all your own connotations to that particular place, your own history. You can visualise it that little bit more clearly. I really loved it. I'm going to bump it up my reading list, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, good one. So, Stephen Knight, given your own interest in both crime fiction and mythology, mm. how well would you say Peter Goldsworthy combines the two in this book, Minotaur? Well, very interestingly, and typically for him, uh, it's never simple. Just as his poetry is comic, rude, vulgar, searching, suggestive, he's asking questions about meaning and subtlety. Is it as simple as you think? Is another way of looking at it, just as you said earlier on, you know, Rick is both the Minotaur and also probably Theseus, and that's very Goldsworthy, I think. Well, uh, thank you very much for that, Stephen and Kate. Peter Goldsworthy's Minotaur is published by Viking Penguin. And you will hear my interview with Peter Goldsworthy on RN, the, the longer version, down the track. Well, here on the bookshelf, it's time to extend our shelf life. Do you like that, Kate? I do. I love a good pun, <laughs> a bookie pun from you, Cassie. Well, we're always looking for more books. So let's hear what else our guests have been reading today. Hannah, what book can you send our way? Well, I've just read, it's a collection of essays by an Aussie writer, Sam George Allen, called Witches, What Women Do Together. It's an incredibly interesting collection of both her thoughts and her research and her conversations with other women on a whole different sort of, on a whole variety of subjects from women who are in farming to the history of midwifery and the ways in which um, midwifery and midwives have had to sort of fight for, for their place and, and survival, but, um, you know, a historical look at midwifery to the emergence of dance as a way for women of colour particularly to uh, establish self-esteem and to sort of uh, find places for self-expression in a largely white society. I mean, it's an incredible, very diverse collection of essays, um, so I would highly recommend. Uh, I'm also... 
I'm also finishing Moby Dick, uh, which I've never read before. And I just think it's the most hysterical, wonderful, joyous novel. Uh, so really enjoying that. And so I'm looking forward to getting back to that because work keeps taking me away from it. Stephen Knight, what are you going to offer up to us? Well, of course, Moby Dick, you know, is a revenge novel. <laughs> Captain Ahab hates Moby Dick because he bit his leg off. It's one of the big revenge novels, like The Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> I bet Goldsworthy has read it. <laughs> <laughs> and and what about you, though? What what have you read recently that um, that you? Well, I tend to be stuck in the past, you know, and stuck in the popular past. The thing I've been reading lately, a lot of, including at night, is F. J. Child's five volumes published in the eighteen eighties of the English and Scottish popular ballads. Because what I'm planning to do next, crazy as it may sound, is write a, an account of what these 305 ballads coming from about three or 400 years up to the 18th century, what they're actually about. They're popular. They were sung by ordinary people and collected by scholars in the 17th, 18th century. So what were the popular people doing? They were using these stories to talk about love hatred, betrayal, courage, panic. And that's what I want to do because nobody has ever looked at their themes. It's a bit like studying crime fiction for its social, political meanings. I just want to see what it was like and perhaps even connect it up a bit with popular television. Well, thank you both for being excellent reader reviewers for us today. It's been a delight. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Hannah Kent's novels are Burial Rights and The Good People, and Stephen Knight's books include The Politics of Myth, Merlin, Knowledge and Power Through the Ages, and A Study of Urban Crime in the 19th Century. So many books on today's bookshelf. And ideas, hopefully, for what you might read next Thursday, the 19th of September, during Australia's Reading Hour. Now, next week, I'm reading Kate Ann Patchett's The Dutch House. Looking forward to that. Also on the show, Emma O'Donoghue's Akin and Bernadine Evaristo's Girl, Woman, Other. Ooh, delightful. Well, looking forward to it. See you then, Kate. Bye. Bye.